This is the Hash Podcast. Stay informed with the latest on Bitcoin, ETH, the Metaverse, Web3, and more. All on the Hash for your ears. You're listening to the Coindesk Podcast Network. Hello and welcome to the Hash on Coindesk TV and the Coindesk Podcast Network. It's a Friday. Let's have some fun. My name's Zach Seward. We got Jen, Sanasi, Adam, Levine, Will Foxley. Who's going to lead us off with the first story of the day? Will, got some Binance news. What's up? I do. Not so fun of a Friday for the Binance crew here. We actually got some sadder news, Zach, which is that Binance is under investigation by the Paris Public Prosecutor's Office, as told to Coindesk. This comes as Binance has also made news that they are pulling out of the Netherlands after failing to secure some AML KYC licenses they needed to operate in that jurisdiction. So they're shutting down. As for the Binance Paris France news, uh, they're designed to, or they're getting uh, involved with the, with the regulators there. This comes a year afterward. They announced the opening of an office in Paris, and the whole plan was that they were going to build out of Paris. So it was a little bit odd to see this news this morning. Binance, of course, has just been in the headlines quite a bit because the SEC ruling the other day, or SEC uh, suing Binance. We'll see what happens with this one. Jenny, I'll throw it to you to start off the conversation. Not great news to like move your office to a location and then a year later have an open investigation into you. Well, this is interesting because we've spoken so much on the show about how Europe is becoming more friendly to crypto and, and crypto firms are moving off to Europe. And now we see the biggest crypto exchange in the world facing regulatory uh, scrutiny, a lawsuit from the SEC here in the US. And, and now they're also experiencing uh, similar regulatory scrutiny in Europe. What was interesting to me was uh, Binance, you know, they're opening in Paris. They received approval in May of last year. And this filing from the regulator pertains to behavior before they received that approval. And so it feels like maybe regulators in other countries are looking at the allegations in the SEC's suit against Binance and saying, hmm, we have this exchange operating in our jurisdiction, and maybe we should look in to if similar activities have taken place. It was just a wild thing for me to read that they received approval over a year ago, and now they are being investigated for that activity. I don't know, Zach, what do you think? Yeah, I mean, this has long happened to Binance, right? Like Binance goes around and runs sort of fast and loose and says, hey, we want to offer this service, like our customers want this service. And it's sort of like the Uber story. I'm not to, not to be a, a Binance apologist here, but Uber showed up in cities around the world and said, hey, we're doing ride sharing. We don't care about these taxi uh, cab reg- like licensure stuff. We're just doing it because the people want it. It's more efficient. It's a better service. And Uber became a mega successful company. Binance similarly has done the same thing with finance and has similarly encountered significant blowback in many a jurisdiction. So the idea that this is new and novel is a bit off. Uh, of course, I think regulators around the world are looking pretty seriously at some of these big crypto firms, especially in the wake of what the SEC alleged with Binance specifically. So the fact that a surprise visit uh, occurred in Paris uh, checks out. Some people say that's pretty standard operating procedure for French regulators. Um, And just because you make sort of a more um, regulatory amenable situation doesn't mean that you can just go to Europe and set up shop and flout the law, right? Like these regulations exist to make sure that people are in compliance with the laws. And so that's what the French regulator in this instance is trying to achieve. And it just happens to happen to Binance quite a bit. And we've seen it over the years 
you know, like going back to the, the Shanghai days, right? Like there's all these things that seem to happen to Binance because again, they're playing fast and loose with laws that aren't really fully codified yet around how to treat the sale of these digital assets. I think that you're, you're right on there. And I also think that there's just a lot at stake here. And that wasn't always true, right? Again, like we talk about kind of like the laws and what the regulators are trying to enforce. In the US, obviously, we know that that's a total mess with conflicting jurisdictions. But in Europe, again, as in much of the world, this is still really being figured out. And so when you're trying to build one of these businesses, it's kind of like building on sand where it's like it might work and things might go great, but also things could just shift aggressively. And then you might find that something you did in the past actually was not okay, even if at the time you thought it was. Certainly early in Binance's life, again, like they, they played this game better than anybody else. But as they've gotten big and as you do get big, it gets hard to play. And so this, again, seems like a conceit where they said, hey, let's set up somewhere. Because again, like the EU is looking like it's going to be a really, really big market. They definitely want to be in that market and they need to set up somewhere. So this might have seemed like the best place. In hindsight, though, I think what you find is that Again, this represents a, a pretty big threat to the power structures of the world. And with the stakes this high, it's not surprising to see this continuing to shift. Will? Yeah, no, I agree with everything you're saying there. To me, I'd be wondering from the Binance opinion on this, as an employee, as a customer, what are your thoughts on something that's going on with Binance, right? They, they've moved to all these jurisdictions. And oftentimes, I either try to uh, kiss up to whoever lobby and be able to get all the licenses they need and then operate like legally. Or they operate sort of like under the radar while they're getting their whole operation set up on the licensing front. And over time, you're hoping that hey, maybe like the regulators overlook this and just like don't care. Uh, so that seems to be like the strategy. And I think it has worked to some degree. And I think this has always had to be the plan in some way. I mean, to be able to get all these licenses costs so much money. You wouldn't be able to operate globally without pulling off this sort of strategy. But if I was a Binance employee, I'd be looking at this and thinking, Hmm, this is kind of tough. Like every single day, there seems to be like another bad headline right now. But maybe that's just the state of crypto. Zach, we got the next story for you. We do. I will take it. Let's talk about crypto lending. Abra Kadabra. The trick is that Abra was alleged to be insolvent for the last few months, according to state securities regulators here in the US. This, I think, goes to show the interwovenness of all these failed crypto lending firms and Abra seems to have been ensnared because they have tens of millions and dollars tens of millions of dollars on various bankrupt or otherwise impaired platforms. This is the Texas state securities regulator. We've seen a lot of state securities regulators in the US go after these crypto lending platforms from Celsius to Voyager. They're taking a very active role in protecting or alleging to protect their consumers that live in their states over uh, the offering of unregistered securities and other sort of interest-bearing schemes. So this is interesting to see. The fact that this company has sort of been quietly um, insolvent for the last few months is certainly a notable finding as evidenced in this um, claim and uh, complaint from the Texas securities regulator. So I'm going to toss it straight to uh, Adam for his thoughts. Yeah. I mean, I think, again, another key word here, as with many of these stories, is alleged. The regulator is alleging that they have been insolvent, but that hasn't actually gone through courts yet. But I think that your broader point is totally the one to focus on, which is just really that, one, the interconnectedness of these companies and the lack of transparency over those connections really comes from the idea that when you have this much money and you have to manage that much money, that's actually a big challenge. And it's something we've seen many of these projects run into where it's like when you're small, relatively speaking, you've got maybe a couple, you know, tens of millions of dollars that you're looking to place. 
like that's something that you can do and you can have a, a decent amount of kind of diversification and, and uh, expectation, you know, that you're not going to kind of eat the opportunity you're trying to go at. But what we've seen is that a lot of times these projects from those early successes grow into something that isn't really sustainable. Now, Aver's business model hasn't really ever been about the core lending thing. Seems to me this is more of a treasury play than anything else. And the problem with those treasury plays is where do you put all that money, right? So again, there's more details for me to dig into on this one, but it's an interesting story and a surprising one for me. It seemed like they were better actors than all of this. So I'm waiting to kind of see what comes from it. Well, yeah, just a few names here and to catch everyone up, like essentially the issue here is that a lot of the treasury for Abra was placed in a bunch of people who went bankrupt or in chapter 11 processes. So that include Babel Finance, which was a pretty big lending facility out of, I believe, Hong Kong and Singapore during the bull market. They've since had a lot of problems uh, and are you know, going through a Chapter 11 process. Uh, and then there's also three Arrows Capitals involved with this. And I think one other company as well. Uh, oh, it's Genesis. Now I'm just remembering. So tough. Like You put all your money in these projects, expecting them to like be a good custodian, use it for lending, use it to be able to bring yield in. And they seem like they spread out their bets as well, right? A lot of these companies that we think of, namely maybe the Gemini and Genesis debacle, which is currently ongoing, that was just one custodian and one lending program. This, they spread out their bets to three different people and all, all three of them went belly up and who knows what else. Uh, again, this is all alleged. So we still have to find out what happens with the quote unquote insolvency. But for a state securities office to go out and say this, hints that they probably have very strong evidence against it. The one last thought on this is the fact that the states are going after some of these programs and projects as opposed to just the SEC. It's interesting that there's like a multi-tiered approach within the US, right? Where the SEC is kind of taking out these bigger projects and then the states step in afterwards. We saw that with the Binance dispute, I believe, where Binance was sued first by the SEC and then a bunch of states also came out afterwards and had some uh, some suits. So a lot of this is still alleged. We still need to have like the finer details, but not another great headline. Jen, I'll throw it up to you. Yeah, you mentioned the alleged exposure to uh, Genesis, 3AC, Babel. There's also some reporting that's saying Abra has had allegedly misrepresented their exposure to FTX and that like transparency of all of that interconnectedness, I feel like is the theme of everything that's happened late last year and the beginning of this year. And we're seeing the knock-on effect. If we zoom out a little bit on this story, you know, it was mentioning Abra's been around for 10 years. I think last year they announced that they were going to offer crypto rewards through a partnership with Amex. And we, we heard similar partnerships with the likes of FDX and some of these other players who no longer exist or who are going through bankruptcies right now. And it just like brings me back to this mainstream adoption conversation we were having. I think partnerships with players like Amex, like Visa, like MasterCard really instilled trust in a lot of people who may have been burned by a lot of the platforms we're talking about right now who had that interconnectedness uh, that we weren't able to see through. So I hope that the industry can learn from all of these, all of this information as it comes to light. Again, in this particular story, everything is alleged. We still need to get some information, but I hope that we're able to grow and learn from here and can build a better industry for the future. That is my optimistic take on this story. Just a sector of lifetime learners, these crypto people. <laughs> lifetime learning is the mandate. Stablecoin issuer Tether kept its funds in four banks and two investment management firms, as well as two gold depositories and a gold broker, as well as its own sister company, Bitfinex, in March of 2021, documents obtained by Coindesk Show. 
under the New York State Freedom of Information Laws. Coindesk requested documents detailing the backing behind the USDT stablecoin issued by Tether after they published uh, their first documents laying out what was in the reserves, which at the time was a whole lot of commercial paper, among other things. Times have now changed, and it looks like that's no longer the case. But honestly, this is still a pretty fascinating uh, snapshot at what is behind one of arguably the most systemically important tokens in the world of cryptocurrency today. Well, there's a lot of numbers in here, and honestly, I appreciate this is a little bit hard to figure out what to make of it. What jumped out at you? Yeah, just for the context for this story, Tether, the largest stablecoin by market cap and has been uh, for quite some time, probably ever, I guess, maybe go back to the early yeah. days of stablecoins, there might have been something that beat it out. But Tether has been the most important stablecoin out there. It's recently become like the de facto trading pair for almost everything. So its basis, meaning its reserves, are of the most utmost importance for crypto. If we don't have good understandings of what its reserves are, well, then we could get ourselves in giant pickle where a lot of the market is not supported correctly. And so that was the idea behind this entire uh, move by the Coindesk editorial team, including uh, Nick Lichte, who ran with this, got a freedom of information uh, request approved, pulled this information from a lawsuit between uh, the state of New York, I believe, and uh, Tether itself. Now we have that information and it's been published and we can have a, a nice insight shot of what is going on inside, uh, what's going inside Tether during this March 2021 period. So we don't know exactly what's happening now necessarily, though Tether does publish some of its information here and there. And we don't necessarily have all the historical information for Tether for all its months of operating over time. But we do have this information that does give us more confidence, I'd say, in Tether. And it also gives uh, better insights into what these kind of markets could look like in the future. Uh, so to your point, Adam, there's a few different things that are included in this. Basically, the idea for the stablecoin is we want to create a really safe reserve that's also highly liquid. So we have like a bunch of stablecoins in a bucket. We want to pair it with something that I can immediately sell into the market. And when I sell it, price of that asset is not going to drop. So that's why they have a lot of commercial paper in here. The one thing that is notable, I'd say, besides the gold information, which we actually knew about from a few weeks ago, is the Chinese banks are involved with this, with both securities and commercial paper. Bloomberg ran with that story. I think just maybe the interest here is probably on the political side of things, right? The fact that you know, Tether as an international company and also operating not really in the US because it needs to operate outside because of the SEC, but because crypto is, uh, ha- has a large presence in the US. I think the Chinese angle could be interesting here to politicians looking at stable coins. Overall, that's my only takeaway from it. I thought this was actually a pretty good look for Tether and also a great follow-up on Coindesk. Zach, throw it up to you. Yeah, transparency is good. And Tether's belated embrace of transparency is also good. But it's been a long time coming. They've been long-time antagonists with those seeking more transparent information about what is backing the USDT stablecoin, because it is systemically important to the crypto industry. So the fact that they're kind of embracing this transparency, uh, advancing toward less risky assets in terms of what's backing these stablecoins is fantastic news. It's fantastic to see. Um, but it's rooted in a long sort of distrust of those asking for those things to be more transparent. And so the fact that Tether is sort of, you know, taking to Twitter and other platforms to say, hey, for the benefit of our industry, these public, these documents are now public. Um, there's a bit of irony in it, but overall, the sentiment is right. It is good that these things are known so that people can assess their risks much more capably than they had been able to in the past. Because if for you, like the assets backing Tether are uh, overly risky, you probably don't want to have exposure to that, right? Like you want to be able to make an informed decision. 
Um, and I think that's what uh, transparency here, certainly induced uh, by journalists such as Nick Day, ultimately will serve the market better for the long haul. So it's good to see this stuff come to light. It does provide a snapshot and does really show how far Tether has come from some of those initial doubts as to their banking relationships and into the asset mix behind the, the stable coins itself. I saw Jen, I'm going to toss it to her. I have two questions, Adam, for you. So the first is, if this is a good look for Tether, why was there resistance to release this data in, in the first place? It sounds like there was some back and forth that kind of spanned a couple of years. And second, USDT depegged yesterday. I don't know if it was on the news or if it came just a little bit before the news. Is there any correlation between this news and USDT depegging or was it just a coincidence? So again, I have no no real knowledge about why the depegging happened yesterday. These things do happen and it was not a significant depegging. I think it was like a fraction of a penny that we actually saw a drop off of the core rate. So again, like a big move to sell a ton of that stuff can push down prices in that sort of way. That That isn't particularly alarming to me. I think to, to your larger question about why is this information secret? Why is that valuable for it to be secret? So uh, full disclosure, I was involved with the early specification of Tether back in the spring of 2014, and I decided not to move forward with it among the other people who I was working with at the time, out of concerns that there would be risk associated with affiliation with it. So I have no contracts. I have no... But, but anyways, I was kind of there at the very beginning. At the very beginning, and for many years, I think there were likely significant concerns that any information that leaked would create attractive targets for governments to then go after those banks. So I think that there is real value to secrecy um, around both the jurisdictions that you're in. I remember in the very, very early days with Bitfinex, one of the things that sort of defined them and allowed them to, to be a really kind of useful exchange was that they had a banking relationship in Macau, which is sort of the quasi-regulated you know, portion of China that's typically gambling, where a lot of like interchange between you know, Chinese currency and non-Chinese currencies happens. So that, that banking relationship was a pivotal one early on. It's not mentioned in this, so it doesn't seem like it's true anymore. They mentioned one Singapore bank and three different uh, Delta, uh, three different uh, Bahaman, Bahamian uh, institutions, one of which is Deltec, who's a somewhat big player in kind of this space. But yeah, it's uh, so I think that there is value to keeping this information secret. But to, you know, as these things have become more mature, the reasons to keep it secret have kind of dropped away because it's not like if somebody wanted to find Tether, like you just can't hide this much money. So again, the people who you would want to keep this information from who might then try to, you know, seize it or go after that bank or something like that, they kind of already have that information. So it does make sense they would stop fighting at this point and actually kind of reveal this information. But I do think that there were valid reasons early on. Will? I think this information had to go public at some point. Like they filed to block it, but Coindesk was able to get around that. And to Jen, your point about like the depegging event yesterday, if you look at the bottom of this Coindesk article, there's some explanations about the timing when this event was reported. There was a lot of chatter on Twitter, as people like to do, saying that information was leaked prior, causing a depegging event, or possibly even someone trading against this news. But Coindesk had, didn't even receive the information by the time Tether was already depegging. So if you look at the timeline, it's just incoherent of an explanation. Now to like the broader question here, which I love Adam's explanation, like why not protect your banking partners, right? Like this is only becoming a larger national security issue for a lot, a lot of different countries out there. And we've seen and spoken on Capitol Hill time and time again. And then also just as like an economic investment, you want to protect who your banking partners are because you want to be able to make sure that you have a liquid investment that you can also earn a yield on top of. Going back to the first point there, we saw that with USDC, right? Where USDC, the Circle Consortium, had a very public partnership with Signature. 
And then that became under target under what is now called choke point, uh, choke point 2.0, right? So we've been talking about that for a while. If politicians know where these bankings are, banking partners are, they can sort of go after them. Zach? Yeah, I guess, uh, you know, those are good points. That's a very good, like, sort of macro uh, perspective to share here as to why some of this information is privileged. But I think overall, just like the uh, soundness of these assets and the soundness of these relationships, the market is entitled to that knowledge. And I think that's what why ultimately this transparency serves the market. Yeah, people have differences of opinion on that for sure, even today. And Tether remains uh, sort of a lightning rod uh, within the crypto community itself. Just real quick, I think there's a really valid conversation to have about business model with these types of projects, because these types of projects, the way that they make their money, it's not by charging users to convert into stable coins. It's by taking that backing and making money off of it, which is inherently a risky asset, whether you're talking about treasuries or you're talking about, you know, you're talking even about dollars stored in a bank account. So I think that's really the challenge is even if you were to keep everything in cash and not make any money off of it, except for the interest you earn in the bank account, that still isn't really safe. So what do you do and how do you make money without creating these types of risks? I don't really answer that question, but I think it's a really important one. Uh, Jen, next story. All right. It is the Friday NFT lightning round. So get ready with your takes, people. They got to be quick. Days after Donald Trump became the first U.S. president to be charged with federal crimes, his two-part NFT project, Trump Digital Collectible Cards, told collectors that uh, the arrest would not stop them from awarding prizes. So winners of prizes were told that they were to burn their NFTs to claim their prizes, which, if you remember, included one-on-one -on -one meetings with the former president, gala dinners, and all sorts of other fun things. Zach, what do you think of the project almost leveraging this major news event to reward prizes? Just masterfully Trumpian, right? Like, all news is good news. Got arrested. Let's go. We're shipping the rewards for our Trump <laughs> NFT holder fans. Let's do this thing. So, yes, very... Uh, very, yeah, very Trump, very on brand. So amazing to see that these rewards are actually being rolled out. And now I think there's a tweet embedded in the story where it's someone who's like, I never thought they were actually going to do this. So like, wow, it's amazing that they're doing it, especially now. Like, let's take the Zoom call. So it is funny to see this uh, transpire. I mean, I think like, like real talk, like these are a community of people who are actually a meaningful NFT use case. It's like, oh, I get like a perk with my favorite political superstar. No matter what you think of the guy, like there is a community of engaged fans who are like, I'm using this as, um, you know, for, uh, for, for access, right? This is the utility that these NFTs provide is access to someone that I admire and think, think of in whatever way, shape or form. Funny to see this come to pass. And uh, yeah, congratulations to this project for keeping the momentum alive. Uh, Adam, what are your thoughts? Yeah, so full disclosure, I have a couple of these that I purchased on the uh, oh. the day that it came out. Oh, Adam, I, I tried to check this prizes? morning. I tried to check this morning if I had won any prizes, and it was honestly too much of a schlep, so I didn't have time to do it before the show. <laughs> but I think again, you know, like when you're when you're kind of looking at the at the space at the political space out there today, what you see is a world that doesn't make any sense under most circumstances, and doesn't really matter if you're on the left, doesn't really matter if you're on the right world is a crazy place and the stuff that's happening is definitely not good. And I think that all this fits right in with that, right? Like it's, it's kind of hilarious, honestly, that like a Trump offshoot, because again, remember Trump isn't actually involved with this. This is somebody who licensed his name uh, and likeness so that they could do this. You know, they're, they're delivering on this thing, at least, you know, at least uh, partially, at least kind of uh, relative to what the expectation was. And it's nice to see that continuing to happen, but uh, I'm not really holding up a lot of hope for these things being super valuable, got to tell you. So, Will, what do you think? <laughs> 
I love that you have some of these. This is so good. Now, Zach's point's like spot on, right? Any good, no, any news is good news, especially for the NFT market. Like we've seen tons of different projects do a lot of dubious things and the price goes up for them. So same old, same old. doesn't matter who it is. I love that he's doing this. This does take me back to 2019. We said Bitcoin was bad and now he's doing NFTs. I do love that. Zach? Those were the days. Those were the days. I remember we were at the Coindesk offsite and he tweeted that and Nick Day ran from the offsite and filed the story. <laughs> That was memory. <laughs> anyway, Zach Stewart here, Jensen Assey, Adam Levine, Will Foxley. We're The Hash. We're signing off for another great week, and we'll see you next time. All right, bye. You've been listening to The Hash on the Coindesk Podcast Network. We would like to hear from you. If you have any questions or comments, please reach out to us at podcast at coindesk.com, subject line, The Hash, or leave us a review on your favorite podcast player. Thanks for listening. 